0: And we can make this a routine on Wednesday nights. Any any follow up questions that you got from Sundays? A couple Sundays ago was a difficult um, message. The passage, "And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself." The work, the dragging and plucking work of the cross, that was a um, a challenging message. And you know, I realize that some cross point has made that journey to go to a place where God is the dragger. And the one who plucks, but not everybody has made that journey it's not um it's not a real common message i I was I was preaching <laughs> in a church, having pastored for a year and a half before I really had to reckon with those sort of truths. so I've been a Christian since uh, I began the journey at the age of six, so it's just not a message that people dealt with, and if they believed it. I think they were probably more apologetic about it than really trumpeting it, proclaiming it, and the wonders of it. So I know it's kind of a a weird message. I, I just encourage y'all: when, when you hear messages on election, or you hear messages on predestination, you got to know. I mean, you got to recognize. Hopefully, I'm begging you to recognize that it's not an agenda. It's not an issue of agenda because we're. Thankfully, going verse by verse keeps you from having an agenda, unless your agenda is preaching the word verse by verse, which, okay, that's my agenda. But the reason I kind of try and take some time with these sort of truths is because they're really difficult, and they're difficult for the modern mind, the the modern Western mind, let me clarify. They're difficult for the modern Western mind because we're so individualistic. We're so about our choice. You know, everything that we hear or think really, you don't realize how much rationalism affects us. And, you know, I made light of um, Rene Descartes as the little gremlin that craw- crawled in the oven. He's, you know, what he came up with may, may not seem like it really has that much weight. I think, therefore, I am. But if you really think about it, you'll appreciate that that's invaded our thinking a lot. The way that we operate. And we've got to know that there are some things that are bigger than us. <laughs> I mean, we've got to know that. And we've got to surrender to that. And even when we quake, even when it wrecks us, that in some weird way we've got to embrace that wrecking and say, well, thank you that there is a truth that's bigger than me. Thank you that there are, um, there is a design and a God that I can't know fully. If I could know him fully, then either I would be God or he would not be, and I'm thankful that neither of those are true. I realize too that there's potential—potential um, hey, potential to um, kind of feel like, "Man, that's new. That's kind of new teaching." You, know, you guys are teaching some new stuff over there on the south side of town. I, Rhonda had someone come up to her last week in Walmart in Warner say, "Man, I." You guys got to be careful over there. I've heard some stuff over there at Crosspoint, kind of some new teaching. These aren't new teachings. You got to know that. The newcomers are the ones that have abandoned these sort of teachings about election and predestination, about him gathering the elect from the four winds. It's the newcomers that have jettisoned those teachings. It's the newcomers that are pressing people for making a decision and praying a prayer and walking an aisle and getting a baptism on I walking, you got to know, is only a couple hundred years old. It's not in our Bible. Thou shalt walk an aisle. Thou shalt grab a pew back with white knuckles and then one day surrender in the eighth verse of just as I am. I mean, I make light of that, not on purpose, because I don't want to demean or diminish anything that may have begin to, may have been a very genuine beginning of faith for some of you but in our context, that is the faith. That's our problem in our context, is people see that as the wholeness of the faith. So when you dine on teachings like this, and you see God as the saver through and through, and you see God as the preserver through and through, for me, it's liberating. It doesn't make me, actually it did make me quake at first to realize it's completely out of my hands, but then when I really began to consider myself, I was actually kind of liberated. I'm like, well, thankfully it doesn't depend on me cuz how would i know if i prayed that prayer just right how would i know if um you know if 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 we said just the right things if i was just in the right place for me there's some something liberating encouraging and hopeful about knowing that god is a savior through and through this message com- coming up this next sunday is going to be kind of um a follow on to that God is the saver and really looking at it even deeper going back to a couple of passages in Isaiah that are really troubling where the work of preaching is actually Isaiah's work of preaching is actually going to render in the hearers and the listeners calloused fattened hearts blinded eyes and deaf ears that his work of preaching will actually distance the people of God at that point, Israel, from the truth, which that's what Christ's message did. And he even said the purpose of the parables is to illuminate some and confuse others. The purpose of it. So, I, I ask y'all to, if if you think about it, to pray for me this week. It's some difficult difficult truths to communicate to someone in a single sermon. It's the kind of thing that really takes development over time. Thankfully, I don't put. I think the Lord's changing my heart about a single sermon where I'm I'm recognizing that a healthy people are built over time over a diet of healthy eating, with vegetables, fruit, vitamins, you know, broccoli, and dessert. I mean, we eat dessert too, but you know, it's the whole diet where healthy people are 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 built. So. But I do have a I my fear is someone that steps in for the first time or someone that hadn't walked with us over a period of time that doesn't see how we treat this book and how we treat ourselves and try and place ourselves under the book, where the book is over us and where we submit to it. So pray for me in my preparation, pray for people that uh, may be hearing this this message, this message that's coming Sunday for the first time. And um Pray that the point of the message will be, will find purchase, and uh, you'll you'll have to find out what that is on Sunday. It's developing, and it's liberating, man. It's just liberating. So we'll have a good time on Sunday. If you if you have questions about some of the things that you heard a couple of weeks ago, or maybe even something that I'm alluded to tonight, don't hesitate to email or call. You know, I've said that before, but I want to say it again. I just see the elders, your teachers, and your classes as just approachable. It's not an insult to ask the pastor, hey man, what do you mean in that sermon when you said that the other day? What'd that mean? To me, it's a compliment. It says you're paying attention. And it says, too, that it survived lunch <laughs> on Sunday. <laughs> I love that. You know, the funny time, you know, people hear it, you hear, man, that's a great joke you told on Sunday about four or five days later. I hope you got more than the joke. You know, I don't tell jokes in my sermons, but. Um, it's an encouragement to me and encouragement to teachers that, that are teaching these sort of things too to know that that you have questions. It's not an insult, man. It's not an insult. So if you're digging and wrestling and raging, keep digging and wrestling and raging, and let's do it together and um, be disassembled in the process. So Let's climb into Genesis chapter 3. We are, um, I don't think we're going to finish chapter 3 tonight. Uh, what I hope to do is get as far as God addressing uh, Eve, up into and com- and and including where God addresses Eve, and then uh, the next time we meet on a Wednesday night would cap- would tackle the rest of it, verses seventeen through twenty four. But let me start in the very beginning of chapter three, just for the sake of context. We're going to start low crawling in verse eight. But uh, for the sake of context, I'll read all of it. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. or you gave to be with me she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate then the Lord God said to the woman what is this that you have done the woman said well the serpent deceived me and I ate and the Lord God said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That's where I'm going to stop. I'd be surprised if we get further than that tonight. Let's start in verse 8 and just low crawl verse by verse. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. As I have, um, I refer to this often, this imagery often, because it's imagery that I adore where God is walking with His people in the cool of the day. When I think about the beauty of being a people of God, I think about this picture of That The reality is through the work of the cross that we are returned and restored to the garden. Now, the reality is we still live in a fallen world. We're pilgrims, sojourners, visitors here. But in terms of relationship with God, because of that cross, because of his blood, because of his finished and complete work, that we are restored to a walking in the cool of the day sort of relationship with God. Now, I know it doesn't always feel that way, and we'll talk in a minute. What kind of things can prevent it from feeling and seeming that way? Ultimately, what kind of thing would be sin? But ultimately, we've got to appreciate through the work of the cross that we are restored to the garden. John 10, you don't need to turn there. I'll just share this verse with you briefly. John 10, 10 is one of my favorite verses. Jesus says uh, in 10, he says... um, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, and that work of Christ in that cross and in that empty tomb was a walking in the cool of the day restoration sort of work. And this picture here in Genesis chapter three verse eight, where God is walking in the cool of the day, literally what that means is the wind of the day. Some of you have back porches that just face right, that are just set right, where're in the late afternoon. Ours is not. In the late afternoon, we're getting beat to death with the the sun. But some of you, I've been to your houses before where you can sit out on that back porch in the cool of the day, in the breeze of the day, when the wind is blowing, when the fellowship is sweet, when you can sit and talk and you can enjoy the day and enjoy each other. That's the sort of relationship that man had with God. And what a contrast from what that was to what is actually taking place here where these guys have hidden themselves from the presence of the Lord. And that's the consequence of sin. Like that picture I used a few weeks ago of the hour and the work of the cross bringing judgment on the whole world. This is one of those illustrations that I, I hear about. Thankfully, it's not a joke, but it is an illustration where people talk, talk about the rat killing at the Alexander Animal Clinic where the rats are hiding in the dryer. And they're gnawing on the food. This is the picture of Adam and Eve right here. Because of sin, they're hiding in the bushes. Sin has terrible consequences. It removes us from the presence of the Lord. The worst of that consequence, and there are certain consequences that visit on us, but the worst of those is that we're crossways with our Creator. And this was the, the account here. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now let me ask you, why do you think he'd ask that question? Well, Let me ask an easier question first. Do you think he knew the answer already? Okay. Some of you thinking like a parent might be able to answer the next question. Why do you think he would ask that question? Okay, why? What, what, what do you think he may be after? in asking them that question. Now, he, he knows the truth already, so what might he be working toward? Confession. He wanted to know the truth from her. From her heart. Yeah, he wanted to hear it from her, his mouth and her mouth. He's after what seems to be, he seems to be after a confession. You know, the more and more I study, you know, with our, our little series that we did on Satan... You know, hopefully we're, we're about a lifelong series of studying God, but we had a couple of weeks there where we considered Satan and the way he operates. He operates as the... There's a word that I used frequently, and what is that word? Does anybody know? It's the picture in Zechariah where he's standing there being the accuser. Exactly. And as God is the questioner, Satan is the accuser. You see, two totally different approaches to, to, to leadership in this picture here, in this contrast, and as Satan seems to be the accuser, God seems to be asking questions to lead people to a place of confession. And As I was preparing for this Wednesday night, I was thinking, am I cultivating a spirit of confession in my home and in my relationships? I was thinking about um, a few weeks ago, I had a little encounter with Luke. Luke is our middle son, middle child. And it's so funny how kids are different in the same family. Evan has lied once that we know of in her lifetime, and she's 10. She just, you know, she'll just tell you the truth, whatever the consequences are. You know, she cares what we think, but obviously not enough to to lie to us. Luke, on the other hand, cares desperately about what we think. And he'll lie like a rug. Thankfully, he's not here to hear that, but he's changing. He's changing. We had a breakthrough a couple weeks ago. And it was funny, it was after i have been, been working on Genesis, working ahead. So I'd already prepared this, and I was thinking about that I wanted to bring him to a state of confession, which is really hard for Luke. Um, basically what happened was it was time to put Luke down in bed, and um, I asked him if he'd brushed his teeth. And he said, oh, yeah, I brushed my teeth, and I knew he hadn't. And I said, well, bring me your toothbrush. And that's when he said, oh, well, I, I thought I had. You know, even before the toothbrush got to me, no, I thought I did. I just forgot. And I said, wait a second. Let's bring me the toothbrush. Let's really figure this thing out. And sure enough, it was dry as a bone. So we went downstairs, and we sat down in in my bedroom. That's usually the punishment area. And uh, we talked for a little bit. And I said, Luke, I want the truth from you. I want to hear why you deceived, why you wanted to deceive, or did you deceive us, first of all? Or were you trying to? And he said, no, I just forgot. I just forgot, and he went on and on and on. Finally, we got to the point where I just, I said, Luke, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. Let's let's shoot straight here. You know, I need you to tell me the truth. And Luke will die on the hill of a lie. I mean, he will. But finally, he came to the point where he said, I just wanted to get in bed. And it was just like tears were flowing. My tears were nearly flowing because confession, and he's eight years old. And it's just been a pattern for him. I mean, it's not been something that we've been able to really see a a pattern of hopefulness there. We're trying to shepherd the heart instead of shepherding the actions. And what we would have done in the past is, Luke, I know you're lying. Come here, let me give you a spanking. Now go brush your teeth and get in bed. But that doesn't shepherd the heart. It shepherds the behind. Now, I think, personally, I think the behind and the heart are connected somehow. There's some sort of (laughs) neural pathway there where they're... Some connection there, but just taking the time. It took us about 30 minutes to work through it. But just taking the time where he finally got to the point where he said, I just wanted to go to bed. Okay, now we're getting somewhere, son. Now, were you trying to deceive us? Yes, I was trying to deceive you. And there was something cathartic about it. It was something cathartic for him and for me where I'm like, man, there's hope. There's hope that my son's not going to grow up as a little liar. And there's some hope that this boy that professes to know Christ will be honest in the name of Christ, not just for being a McGraw or a good good boy, but because he bears the name. And um, there's something cathartic about it. A couple of verses I want to bring to mind. They're both neighbors of each other. James five is one. James five sixteen. It's on page 1013 of your pew Bible or your ESV. It says, therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's something cathartic about confession. And there's something that's different about this hiding in the garden sort of thing. It, really what it's doing is it does what God did with Adam and Eve. Come on out of the bushes. Let's bring what you've done and bring you out into the open, out into the light, and let's get it out into the light. Another neighbor of this verse is 1 John, just a few books over, chapter 1, verse 9, page 1021. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think that... um, Sometimes I find myself in a place where I'm not really conscious of confessing my sins to the Lord because I'm like, oh, well, you know, blood of Jesus, you know, we're square. And I know we are, but there's something cathartic about it. There's something cathartic about keeping a short list with him, and there's something that God uses to do that. He blesses that, that work and that journey of confession. And thankfully, he's the sort of God that asks questions and wants to bring us to a place of uh, confession. I think whether you're leading a team, leading a staff, leading a family, leading kids, or leading, being disciples of each other, being involved in each other's lives, the pursuit of confession is is a worthwhile thing. And um, God will bless it. We'll look at that more in a second. Let's look at verse 10 of Genesis chapter 3. So Adam says, basically God just asked him, Let's see, in verse 9, the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And in verse 10, he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It's interesting that the same exact word in the Hebrew for obey is the same word here. So it's ironic here that basically it could be translated, I obeyed the sound of you in the garden. I heard is a good translation. I heard the sound of you, but it's ironic that He didn't obey, so, oh, now he's listening. See, I wasn't obedient to you now or before, but now I'm going to obey and I'm going to pay attention and I'm going to hear the sound of you now. What words do you see repeated in this passage in verse 10? What one word? I. What does that tell you about Adam's leadership? Think about it. Was it just an I? Where's Eve? Come on, Adam. (laughs) He's not thinking like a leader. He's thinking like a me and an I. What about woman? Good leadership says we, we, we. I've brought us to this place, although you gave me the fruit. I'm accountable and I'm guilty. Now, let me ask the question, why do you think he hid? Uh, they're obvious answers, so it's not like a trick question, but let's let's bring them out. Shame, okay, fear, okay, ultimately uh, sin. It's why people won't call me back sometimes. Now, I'll be honest. Well, yeah, that may not be, maybe she doesn't like me. But really, I'm telling you, I've, I, in four years, I hadn't been pastoring long. i have been pastoring long enough to see this weird pattern in people. Where sometimes people will just kind of drop off the radar screen. They're real involved in the people of God for a period of time. Maybe they're going through a crisis. And as that crisis actually develops and things change. And their excitement kind of wanes. And then they won't call me back. They won't email me back. And two reasons. I think they think that I'm holy somehow. And they think that they're not so they hide and they retreat. And we tend to do that when it comes to sin issues. We retreat from the people of God, too. Christy and I, our first year of marriage, I, I sh- I've shared this with people before, and Christy won't won't mind me sharing this, but our first year of marriage was very difficult. We've been married 12 years, and we really struggled our first year. We kind of asked the question, you know, why do we marry each other? You know, why are, um, is this, this going to be a long rest of our lives together? We're not going to consider bailing on each other, but we might consider choking each other. I mean, that was kind of the mindset, and um, I think uh, I've shared this before, too, that some of our most difficult arguments came on Sunday mornings, right before I was supposed to go teach a Bible study. And, man, I'm like, man, I just want to bail. I don't want to go be with the people of God. But there's also something cathartic about being with the people of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Sometimes we feel like if we are dealing with sin, wrestling with sin issues, that we can't be with the people of God or we can't um, engage each other. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, encourage me that we've got to press through those times. And if we get in a place where we feel like, man, I, I don't feel worthy to go be with the people of God, then that would imply that you you know, when you do come, that you think you're worthy. (laughs) The reality is we're never worthy. It's through the work of another and the finished work of another. But this passage here in 1024 encourages me. It says, and let us consider how to stir, uh, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's community right there. And that picture of stirring each other up to love and good works, that's the work of community. And the very thing that we run from, the bushes that we hide in because of sin, are the very bushes that keep us from love and good works. And when we engage the people of God and come out of the bushes, then sin just has a way of um, coming to light. It It might involve some embarrassment. It might involve some awkward moments with a brother or something like that or a, a wife or kids or somebody that you've wronged. But, man, there's reconciliation in the people of God, and there's encouragement, there's nourishment and blessing. Sin likes to hide in the bushes, but the problem is that it grows well in the bushes and the dark. Keep keeps sin in the dark, and it will flourish and bring it to the light, and it has nowhere to go. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine, and... Uh, He's involved in a ministry that's, that's working with young people. And uh, he was sharing with me that he gets applicants to be involved in this ministry. And probably 50% of his applicants confess, male applicants, confess to dealing with porn. And this is a ministry where they're mobilizing young people in ministry all over the world. And the, the, the funny thing is, is that's 50% that confess it. That there may be another, I don't know, twenty or thirty percent, and this is of all the male applicants into this program that that are, are struggling with it but don't confess it. And I was talking with this friend of mine, and we were just considering. I wonder how much of that's going on in the church, where men are too proud, are too, um, I don't know, bush-hiding, too um, individualistic. I don't know what. I don't know what. I don't know what things are involved there where we don't want to bring that out into the light. And, man, it flourishes in the dark, and it will eat your lunch. And I encourage you all that um, the men in this room, that if that is an issue for you, then you got to drag that out of the bushes. And it'll mean talking with another man and saying, hey, man, how do you not fail in this area? How do you succeed in this area? And uh, otherwise, it's not... Maybe it will eat your lunch or when it eats your lunch. It, it, it's an issue that it will eat your lunch, and it will eventually catch up with you. There's some things that I do to um, guard me, protect me. I'm on a, um, a program called Covenant Eyes with some other guys where they see everywhere I go. I have it on my work computer and my home computer. And Brad Cardwell gets gets my report, Jeff Collins gets my report. Anywhere I go, they know exactly where I go. There's something kind of community about that. I actually get someone else's report too. And man, there's like this interwoven thing where men need each other to be involved in each other's lives to keep that sort of sin from dragging us and keeping us in the bushes. So it that's just a little side note there, just seeing what really happens with sin and our propensity toward hiding in the bushes and staying in the bushes and sin flourishing there to just encourage you, not, not let that happen, to pray that the Lord would um, would grab you by the nape of the neck and pull you out of the bushes and whatever sin that might be sticking with you. Verse 11 of Genesis chapter 3. He said, this is God speaking, He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? It's more questions that God knows the answers to, if you really think about it. He knows the answers, but he just shows even more so that he's a wonderfully gentle God that is moving them to a place of confession. Something else occurred to me as I was preparing this and considering God's character and how He's asking these questions. Sometimes when I'm talking with somebody or when I catch Luke or someone else in in some sort of sin and we try and work to the place of confession, there's this mindset, okay, I messed up, enough, already, stop, be quiet, let's move on. But God's not doing that. God wants to break it down. He wants to ask detailed questions. He wants to disassemble the sin so that they will learn from the whole process. And not only that, here in Genesis chapter 3, he's doing that for our benefit too, so we can understand the sequence of sin. We can understand how sin works and the propensity for us to hide in the bushes and the propensity for what, what some other things that we're going to see that Adam and Eve do here in a moment. God wants to disassemble and teach because he wants us to understand So those sort of questions are good questions. He wants his people over the ages to be in on the details. Chapter 3, verse 12. The man responded and he said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. What did Adam just do? Okay. Who else did he blame? The woman. Okay. Playing the blame game. What does that tell you about Adam? It's kind of easy to frown on Adam. Poor pitiful sap, but... That's really the same thing that we do. I mean, we we would probably have done the same thing. Not only would we probably have eaten of the fruit, we probably would have done the very same thing and blamed others. But it does reflect that he was a poor shepherd playing the blame game. But it also tells me something that what we see in the world today, this legal climate that we're in where people want to sue each other and blame each other and deflect blame and not take ownership of things, that's not new. That's That started in the garden. I was thinking just a question for us to chew on for a minute. Who does the world blame sin on? Who? Satan? Okay, the devil made me do it? Okay, you're going to hear that from Eve here in a minute. Okay, what else? Who else does the world blame? Environment. Environment. Yeah, it was my surroundings. Everybody else was doing it. Kind of that um, Rodney King thing. Um with the, do you remember that LA riots? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the crowd. Yeah, I was caught a man. Everybody, they, everybody was doing it. What do you mean? Yeah. yeah. What What else? Who else do they blame? Was like Charles Manson. Manson the Helper thing. Yeah. He said society it. Hmm. Now you know what Yeah. Okay. So it was that society, was his environment. Who else do we blame? Who? Parents. That's that would be nurture. My, my parents taught me this. Um, you know, we, we, there's nature and nurture. This is the way my my parents made me. Um, uh, you know, I was thinking of some of the things that I've heard before of what my parents did, or uh, some things that they let me be exposed to that predisposed me to this sin, and. My, my thought is, man, I was overfed and under-exercised, but that's no excuse for gluttony or laziness. I mean, it really isn't. That's my lot where I really was overfed and under-exercised, but that's no excuse, man. You can easily blame that, and then what it really does is excuses sin. There's one more that I was thinking of. Who else can we blame? Nature, God. Yeah, we blame nurture. Mommy and Daddy, we blame nature. God, God made me this way. I'm predisposed in this direction, so that, that's why I, I sinned in that direction. And blaming is not a new thing. It's something that we've done from the very beginning. Well, here's what God says in response. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, he turns to the woman, he says, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So she just did the same thing Adam did. She didn't blame God. But she blamed the serpent. The devil made me do it, and that's a pretty lame excuse. And in verse 14, God gives his consequences to the serpent. He says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Okay, the serpent, who up to this point has been the craftiest, is now the most cursed. He's going to crawl on his belly, and he's going to eat dust all the days of his life. Eating dust and crawling on your belly is a picture of humiliation and defeat. Okay, now, and he's going to do that all the days of his life. Why do you think that Satan wasn't just destroyed in that case? Why, why wouldn't God just, just completely destroy him right then and there? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, exactly. He's, he's introducing something of a dualism here where there's offspring of Satan and then there's offspring of who? Woman, exactly. And that there, there's going to be... It's not a competition, really. It's just an engagement between the two. And we'll develop that here in a moment. But Satan has got to be there. He's got to allow him his days of low-crawling and dirt-eating so that his plan of redemption can be effected through the woman that without Satan being there, there would be no plan of, there would be nothing to be redeemed from. So what he's doing is he's setting up this, this environment where a savior will show, show up as star and as liberator and redeemer. God leaves Satan to test, he leaves Satan to accuse, to tempt. Each generation of covenant people. And he uses his presence to teach them to fight and to teach them to worship. Let me give you an illustration of this. Turn to Judges chapter 2. It's the same question that Evan asked me when I was sharing the gospel, the Mack truck story with her. Why, didn't, why did God just destroy... Satan, right then and there, get it over with, and that's that's the question that we're dealing with right here. But look at this. This is just an illustration of what I'm talking about here in Judges chapter two. Look at verse. Um, I'll start in verse twenty-one. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Okay, the nation of Israel has gone into the Promised Land. Joshua's died. But there's still people in the promised land that need to be driven out. And there's some moving in, for that matter. It's kind of like the little uh, thing at Chuck E. Cheese's where, you're, you know, where the little guy pops his head up and you, you hit him on the head and another one pops up. That's kind of the picture here. So he says, but I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. I'm going to leave all these nations in there. And here's what he says, in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. He's creating an environment for dependence. And then look at this other verse in just the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 2. He did this, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. He left the bad guys in the promised land to teach the people to fight. And here's our, that, that's an illustration, it's just an illustration of our story, of why he's left Satan here, to teach us to fight and to rage for Christ and to put on the full armor and to hook arms with each other as the people of God with the, the shield of faith, shield to shield, and to fight. He's teaching us to fight and to depend on him. If you, if you recognize and you remember how the people of God fought best, it's when they were dependent, they were totally dependent on God. So he's teaching us to fight. He's teaching us to be a needy, dependent people, to see and know his deliverance. Satan's got to be left there for that to happen. He's teaching us to grow desperately dependent. He's teaching us to rage after him. He's also leaving Satan as the accuser. Remember the picture in Zechariah. I'll read it briefly. I think I'll go there frequently now that I've discovered it and enjoyed it so much. The Zechariah picture of chapter 3 where Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan's got to be in the picture somewhere. Satan's standing there to accuse him and he's probably saying things like, look at him, look how dirty his clothes are. He's not like you, God. He's dirty and wicked, but you, you're holy He shouldn't be standing here before you. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. He's filthy. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Satan's got to be in that picture. Put yourself in Joshua's shoes, standing there, hearing the accusations of Satan, hearing him shout those things that in some ways may be true, that you are dirty, and you are wearing filthy garments, and you shouldn't be standing there before a holy God, but then you hear God call out, Satan, I rebuke you. And then you turn to God and you go, that's grace. That's what grace looks like. Hearing the echoes of Satan's accusations, but then hearing God's voice drown those echoes out with Satan, I rebuke you. With my long and strong arm, I pluck Joshua from the fire. We've got to have Satan in the picture. Man, when you take in that imagery and you become Joshua, you realize that's our story. And Satan's got to be in there involved in that. So that's why he's left it's part of that picture. Verse 15 in this passage I just read. We looked at verse 14 and 15 in chapter 3 of Genesis. Verse 15, God says to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This passage right there, verse 15 specifically, is called the Proto-Evangelion. That's Greek. I put it in Ben terms. It's a prototype for the gospel. That's proto means early, and it's a picture of the gospel. I'm going to put in between, between your offspring, snake, and hers. And let's talk about whose offspring is whose first. I want to look at Satan's offspring first. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Satan doesn't have babies. He doesn't have like a family sort of environment. But he does have offspring. And there are a few snapshots of Satan's offspring I want to show you. Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to keep your finger in Ephesians because I'm going to show you a couple different... I'm going to read a couple different things to you. But I want you to stay in Ephesians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. A picture, sons of disobedience, is kind of a little image, a little snapshot of the offspring of Satan. Okay, here's another snapshot. Keep your finger in Ephesians. Just stay there and listen to this account from John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is what I would call the revival gone bad, okay? John chapter 8 is just the funniest story to me. It just turns our mindset about evangelism on its ear. Basically, Jesus preached, hey, I'm the light of the world. And it says in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And that would be the point where people would say, man, that was one seriously successful crusade, boy. We got some baptisms on. We got some cards filled out. But then the problem is, Jesus kept on talking. He kept on preaching. It's like, Jesus, they've already walked down the aisle. they filled out their card. Please don't go on. But in verse 31, he goes on. So Jesus said to the Jews, who had believed in him, just to make sure we're not talking about a different audience, the same crew, he says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. I mean, so far, so good. You know, they're hearing that, Okay. He's just saying, stick it out. Okay, hang in there. Okay, I can do that. But then he goes on. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that pushed a button right there. Free? What you talking about? Free. That's basically Bruce Willis. No, Bruce Willis. Who am I thinking of? The, uh, what you talking about? Different strokes, kid? Who is that? Willis. Uh, I, I, yeah. What you talking about? Free. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Is basically how they respond. These guys who just believed and filled out their cards. They're like, okay, he says, stick with it. Abide in the word. I think I can hang in there. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What did you just say? We're not enslaved to anyone. How dare you? They're pretty forgetful about, doggone, Egypt, Babylon, aren't they? We've never been enslaved to anyone. We're offspring of Abraham. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, it's about to get real personal. Again, the revival gone bad. I just wish he'd have been quiet. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing what your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Uh Uh-oh. Man, that revival has just gone down the tubes, hadn't it? And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. By the end of the chapter, it says in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. (laughs) See what I mean about the revival? It just came unglued. But that's a picture, an image of the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the serpent, they reject the offspring of the woman because that's who Jesus is. He's the offspring of the woman. Ironically enough, genetically, they're the offspring of the woman. Related to Abraham, but spiritually they're not because their eyes are closed, their hearts are fattened and calloused, and their ears are stuffed up. They can't hear him. They can't see him, and they're not responding to him. Pretty amazing picture there, the offspring of Satan. Now, the offspring of the woman, this is hopefully us. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. In the same passage, the contrast between the sons of the serpent or the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the breast of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that's the sons of the woman. It's the offspring of the woman are the elect that are gathered from the four winds that we talked about a couple weeks ago. That's the offspring of the woman. And that's the contrast here. Those who love self and love pride, those are the offspring of Satan. Those who love God are really are made to love God. Those who are made to love God, dragged and plucked, are the offspring of the woman. The rest of Genesis, as we climb in, as we start to hit some of these stories, they'll actually be narratives. We won't low crawl necessarily. We may hit a whole chapter on a Wednesday night, believe it or not. We're going to meet characters that are either offspring of Satan or offspring of the woman. And you're going to see this contrast to the rest of Genesis between these offspring, these competing offspring. Now, back to the proto the proto-gospel. the bruising of the head of Satan and the bruising of the heel of who? Christ. That's what the proto is. And that happens where? On the cross on the cross. Think about the hour that I've been preaching about on Sunday mornings, John 12. The hour has now come. That hour, that is the time where Satan is. Remember what it says? Now will the ruler of this world be cast out because of this work. Now you've done it. Remember that illustration where mom's at the Walmart with the kids are acting up? Now you've done it. She may not follow through on punishment there if she has any sense of decorum, which may not even be an issue in Walmart. But if she has any sense of that at all, she may wait till she gets the kids home and she does business then. She tends to business, but the reality is they did it at Walmart. Their fate was sealed, and that's what happened for Satan on this cross, or that essentially, is Satan's fate was sealed in the cross, and that was a picture of the proto evangelion I think what I'll do is, um, I have time to do the woman. Yeah, let's do that. To the woman, he said, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There's pain and childbearing. Turn to 1 Timothy 2.15. In some weird way, the pain that she experiences actually is gonna be the instrument of deliverance too for her. And if you think about it, it's her offspring, through her offspring that redemption comes, then there's a connection to the woman and the pain that she experiences. And you'll see that here in First Timothy two fifteen. I'll back up a couple of verses. Paul writes to Timothy, verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, by the way. It was the woman that was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There's some weird thing about childbearing and some weird thing about the pain that she goes through that that is actually going to be an instrument of deliverance. Now... It says right here that your desire shall be for your husband. Let's talk about that for a little bit. What do you think that means? Does that mean she's going to be hot for her husband? No. Every every lady in the room is going, no. (laughs) No, that's not. And every man's going, is that what it means? (laughs) No, it does not mean that. I'm sorry. No, it doesn't mean that. Her desire is to dominate. Her desire is to... What, what's the word that comes to mind? there has got to be... Uh, all right, who's going to say it? Who's going to be the... It might, might be a young single man. It was a young single man that says it? Who, who said it? I heard it. Nah, okay, Brad Cardwell. All right, he and Christy can brave that word. Because Christy doesn't do that. Uh-uh. The issue is nagging. Nag. Nag. Her, her desire will be to dominate him. Look at Genesis chapter 4 verse 7. It's the same word desire there. This is the story of Cain and Abel. And in in this passage, it's, it's kind of brought out. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That picture of desire is a picture of ownership. She wants to own you. That's a result of the fall, man, is that your wife wants to own you. She wants to control you. She wants to control everything you say, how you act, how you think, even how you look. That's a natural result of the fall. Yeah, that's all. I go. yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, now you hit the nail on the head. You've got to appreciate that that is a result of the fall, but that is not appropriate for the people of God who have been restored to the garden. You've got you to appreciate that. The people of God are to operate differently because we've been restored to the pre-fall sort of walking in the cool of the day relationship with God. So the same should be true of the relationship between man and woman in the garden. Is that woman is not a nag. Woman does not beat her husband to death. Woman does not keep a record of wrongs. Woman does not get together with other woman and say, man, let me tell you about what my man did. What does your man do? What, Oh, sorry, rascals. How do we put up with them? Poof. That's not encouragement. That's not edification of the people of God. I want to encourage Christian women. That is not appropriate to try and control your man and nag him to death. But it's also not appropriate for man to rule over her. I mean, look at that passage. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. It's not appropriate for man to lead and rule. It's appropriate for man to lead as a servant. It might be easier for a woman to follow a man that's leading as a servant. The, the, the interesting thing to me here is realizing that God ordained attention in marriage from the outset. One of the consequences of the fall is that he ordained attention, where woman wants to rule over and or woman wants to, to uh, desires to kind of dominate and control her husband, and man desires to rule over. So he's ordained this tension. So the thing is that that there's no marriage that just happens naturally. A good marriage doesn't happen naturally. A good marriage is, over time, undoing those things that we're both prone to, the ruling and the desiring. That over time, people of God sort of marriages, those things are diminished, and husband leads like a servant. And wife does not nag or try and uh, desire to dominate her husband and control her husband. But it takes time. I mean, it's hard for that that stuff to happen. Left to our own device, this is what it would look like, where woman's nagging and man's ruling. The lesson here for women is that not not to try and control your man. Nagging is not appropriate for garden marriages, and for men, is don't try and rule your woman. Try and serve her. And um, lovingly and patiently. We'll pick up in verse seventeen. The next time that we study, um, we are, are uh, next Wednesday night. I'm going to be out, but we will have a study next Wednesday night. The next Wednesday night after that is our Wednesday night before mobile worship. Our next mobile worship, we're going to be at the Civic Center, and uh, I'm actually preparing a message right now that I'm titling a message for Greenville, and I'm expecting all Greenville to be there. So I, I you know, just go ahead and let everybody know. If you know other people in Greenville, just let them know that they've got to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a it's not an attendance, you know, high attendance Sunday sort of campaign. It really is. I'm preparing a message for Greenville, because it, it's it's a John 12 message that has to do with belief, and it has to do with the context that we live in. That I even talked about a little bit before at the begin, beginning of our study, where people had this mindset that hey, I'm square with God because I've done something, instead of I'm behold, you know, I think I'm square with God because I'm beholding. <laughs> because I'm seeking him hard and fast, because I'm raging after him. Um, you know, we, we live in a context where I hear every day, almost, at least he's saved. People talking about a family member or a friend, at least he's saved. You know, he's not part of a church, and I know there's some crazy stuff going on in his life right now, but I know he's saved. And I'm like, really? How you know that? Oh, I was there. I saw his white knuckles on the back of that pew. And when he let go, when he released, there was fingerprints in the <laughs> pew there. Yeah, I'm being facetious. But I, I, saw, I saw that day. I saw him baptized. I saw his tears. And I'm like, wait a second. That may be the beginning of faith, but that is not the wholeness of it. And uh, we, we, we are living and worshiping and following Christ, raising families in an environment that really, in large part, believes in really this mindset of decisionism. Let's make converts of people instead of let's make disciples. And that's, you know, I'm not condemning other churches, man. I'm praying with other churches. I, 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 it's just basically saying, let's expose the word. Let it, let it do its terrible work to us and let's beg him to do that terrible work to the people of faith in this community to where we, we hold up the standard of what it means to follow Christ, that we bear a cross, that we die. And... Uh, uh, that, that message will be the last Sunday of this month. So I don't know how I got there. Oh, yeah, that, that next Wednesday will be the mobile worship kind of preparatory Wednesday night where we hit the neighborhoods around the Civic Center. Anybody have any last thoughts or questions? or Oh, one last announcement. Sunday night at 6 p.m., we're going to have our first uh, shepherds meeting. Now, let me define what that is. Shepherds would include, of course... Fathers and husbands who are leading a family or leading a marriage. It would also include moms that are single moms. That's your functional shepherds. Uh, it would also include uh, singles if you're kind of in a role where you're having to shepherd yourself. You, you're not living with someone else. You're by yourself right now. And it would also include spiritually single moms who may be married, but your husband, you know, or has a husband that that's not a believer are not involved in the faith at all. But Sunday night at 6 p.m., we're going to have a shepherds meeting, and uh, we're going to have the Lord's Supper together. We're going to have a time of the Word together. It may be mostly men, but it won't be exclusively men, not in our environment of single-parent homes and things like that. So, But we're going to focus on shepherds, and um, I've been burdened that uh, me and the other elders have recognized that the, um, the other elders and I, I really work with that I and me thing, the other elders and I, have uh, recognized that the shepherds are really the the linchpin for the family. Linchpin is the thing that held a wagon to a team of workhorses. And that without it, you could have a team of mighty, powerful workhorses, and you could have a great trailer. But without that little old linchpin, you're not getting anything done. And the shepherds are the linchpins for the family, and they're really linchpins for the people of God, for the health of the people of God. So... Um, given that realization, we want to be real intentional about really walking with shepherds and really spending time together, praying together, raging together. That's my word for the week, raging, man. I know you heard it a lot, but that's, man, I just love that word. Because that's what the journey of faith is. It's fighting for it, wrestling with it. And um, so we'll do that Sunday night at 6 p.m. We'll have the Lord's Supper together. We won't have child care, so if there are any single moms that uh, have kids and need to to drop them somewhere they can drop them at a home where mom's a mom may be there and the shepherd in that home is heading to the meeting so but I'll I'll give you a reminder about that on Sunday morning all right let me pray and we'll dismiss <clears throat> Lord I pray that you will um just arrest us with uh, the gravity of what it means to follow you I pray that you'll give us a a vision and a picture and an understanding of uh, what it means to be your people. Lord, I pray that studies like we've had tonight will be studies that are life-changing, that will never be routine or mundane. Let's pray that we will dig and feast with sincerity and that we will enjoy you desperately and that we'll pursue you with everything in us. And that whatever may be in the way, whatever might be um, keeping us in the bushes or have taken us into the bushes, that you will arrest us from those um, those hidden places, that you will liberate us from those hidden sins. I pray for the shepherds in this room and, and uh, the men especially that may ha- have struggles that they're not sharing with other men. And I pray not for this weird, touchy-feely, goofy um creepy sort of environment but a, just a sincerity between men where we recognize the gravity of holiness the gravity of being your people and that we're serious about bringing things into the light and reckoning with you and reckoning with each other Lord, as I pray as a result of that is that you'll just bring about a healthy people that are just salty and bright and aromatic and are surprised by grace and um, whose worship is just rich and deep and it's not contained to a place in town or a day of the week. But it's just invading every area, every cubicle, every hour, and every day, and every relationship. Lord, I confess as one of the elders of this church that we can't accomplish that. We can't muster it. We can't force it. But that's your work, and we beg for it. We beg that you'll just grow us up into maturity, that you'll make us salty and bright and that we'll bring glory to you. We love you so much, Lord. We turn the rest of this evening over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.